Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, February 29th, 2024, a leap day. We're the only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. We're going to leap right into the top stories. Mitch McConnell says he'll step down as Senate Minority Leader in November. Drug Lord Ridwan Taghi is sentenced to life in a prominent Dutch trial. Biden and Trump surge to big wins in the Michigan primaries. The U.S. and other NATO allies rule out troop deployments to Ukraine. EU Plus sees asylum claims at their highest level since 2016. South Korea's birth rate drops to a new record low. Marianne Williamson throws her hat back into the ring for the U.S. presidency. An LGBTQ parade in Australia allows out-of-uniform police to march following a high-profile murder. Two men are convicted in the 2002 killing of an iconic Run DMC rapper. And Apple reportedly scrapped its driverless electric vehicle project. McConnell to step down as Senate Minority Leader in November. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, and Daily Wire. Republican U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell announced Wednesday he will step down as Senate Minority Leader in November, though he will still serve out his current term through January 2027. McConnell, 82, is the longest-serving Senate party leader in U.S. history, having assumed the role in 2007. In recent years, he has endured health issues, including suffering a fall and separately freezing during press conferences. Despite his health issues, McConnell has led the push for continuing aid to Ukraine, legislation that has received backlash from the more isolationist pro-Trump faction of the Republican Party. McConnell was instrumental in the confirmation of then-President Donald Trump's three Supreme Court nominees. McConnell has since distanced himself from the former president over Trump's claims regarding the 2020 election. Minority Whip John Thune, Republican of South Dakota, Senate Republican Conference Chairman John Barrasso, Republican of Wyoming, and Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, are reportedly candidates to succeed McConnell as party leader. Eric, thank you for the facts on our first story. Today, I'm going to start our first rounds of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by New York Post. The GOP is losing a leader who truly understood how to get things done in Washington with bipartisan stability. Unlike some up-and-coming Republicans who are moving the party away from Ronald Reagan's brand of conservatism to Trump's polarizing philosophies, he bravely called out Trump after the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots. But that was probably the beginning of the end of McConnell's institutionalist hold on a leadership position. We're going to follow that with an establishment critical narrative coming from The Federalist. McConnell has tended to serve the interests of neoliberal corporate elites rather than the American people. Too often, he has worked against the political values of his constituents and forged unpopular alliances in the pursuit of donor funds. Rather than only giving up his leadership position, McConnell should immediately retire from the Senate. It's time for more populist voices to rise in congressional leadership. And our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community are going to spare no time and jumping into the narratives. They're going to start with their first nerd narrative that says that there's a 75% chance that the GOP will control the Senate after the 2024 election. In a recent prominent Dutch trial, drug lord Ridwan Taghi has been sentenced to life. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, CBS, Daily Mail, Dutch News, 
The Telegraph, and BBC News. Cocaine cartel leader Ridwan Taghi and two of his gang members were sentenced to life imprisonment by a Dutch court on Tuesday. Fourteen other men were given prison sentences of between 21 months and 29 years in the biggest trial in the Netherlands' criminal history. Taghi was convicted of five murders committed by his Amsterdam-based gang, the so-called Macro Mafia, considered to be one of the major cocaine syndicates in the Netherlands. The prosecution described Taki and his co-defendants as a, quote, well-oiled killing machine. The court ruled that Taki, one of the Netherlands' most wanted fugitives, was the gang's, quote-unquote, undisputed leader, and that, quote, he decided who should be killed and spared no one. The court asked the media not to name the judges in the so-called Marengo trial for security reasons. One of the biggest trials in Dutch history officially began in 2021, after Taki was arrested in the United Arab Emirates and extradited to the Netherlands in 2019. He and the other defendants were charged with involvement in six murders and four attempted murders. The Dutch Moroccan, who moved from Morocco to the Netherlands when he was two years old, denied all charges. Reportedly, Worth $1 billion, Taki is suspected of being the mastermind behind cocaine trafficking from countries such as Colombia, Panama, and Ecuador to Europe. After former gang member Nabil B. turned crown witness, three were shot dead in connection with the case, including his brother in 2018. His lawyer, Dirk Weersom, a year later, and his advisor investigative journalist, Peter DeVries, in 2021. These cases are being tried separately. Adam, thank you for the facts. We're going to start out with Narrative A coming from Bloomberg. Taki's conviction is the result of the Dutch law enforcement authorities' relentless investigative work and has repercussions far beyond the borders of the courtroom. It's testimony to the commitment and resolve of liberal democracies in fighting organized crime and international drug trafficking. The case also highlights the immense challenges the judicial system faces in dismantling sophisticated criminal networks. International cooperation and innovative strategies are crucial to protect society in a new era of organized crime. The spin's going to continue with DW providing a narrative B. The verdict against Taki and his fellow gang members may bring some relief to the victims' families and certainly a blow to Taki's drug empire. However, it is, above all, a symbol of the fears of many Dutch people that their country could turn into a narco-state as a result of decades of permissive policies. This crucial debate will continue, as will the cocaine trade in the country. The trial has exposed the bitter reality of the Netherlands and its mark on Dutch society, particularly among lawyers and journalists, will be permanent. And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that at least 62 countries will, at least in some form, decriminalize possession of all Schedule One drugs for personal use, but wait, by the year 2070. Oh, come on. <laughs> like next three years, maybe? Next, Jeez, Louise, what's a boy to do? <laughs> News out of the Michigan primaries where Trump and Biden win big. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, USA Today, Associated Press, and CNN. On Tuesday, President Joe Biden won the Michigan Democratic presidential primary and former President Donald Trump prevailed in that state's Republican primary, pushing the U.S. closer to a rematch of the 2020 presidential election. With 95% of the vote counted, Biden had secured 81% of the vote, while Trump had earned 68% of the GOP vote. 
Trump defeated his last remaining challenger, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who days after losing to Trump in the primary in her home state got 27% of the vote in Michigan. Biden's main challenge came from votes for uncommitted, which were the result of an effort to protest U.S. policies towards Gaza and civilian casualties. With 95% of the vote counted, uncommitted had grabbed more than 100,000 votes, or 13%. Michigan was the last primary before the upcoming Super Tuesday primaries. Prior to Michigan, Biden defeated lesser-known candidates in South Carolina and New Hampshire the latter of which he won on write-in votes. Trump is now undefeated through five major Republican contests. Michigan projects to again be a crucial state in the 2024 election. Trump won it by nearly 11,000 votes in 2016, before Biden recaptured it for Democrats by around 150,000 votes in 2020. Thanks, Adam. The first spin is a Republican narrative coming from the American conservative. A victory in the pivotal state of Michigan is well within reach for Republicans with Trump, the inevitable GOP nominee, showing his dominance in the state. On the other hand, Biden, who squeaked by in the state in 2020, is wobbling because the large chunk of Muslim and Arab voters who are horrified with his policies. Biden is beatable in Michigan, and this could prove to be a vulnerability in other states as well. The Republican narratives are typically followed up with the Democratic narrative. NBC's going to provide one for this story. Biden is on firm footing. Michigan voters knew the president was going to run away with it, so a portion of the electorate chose to use their votes to have their voices heard. Looking forward to the general election, the president has plenty of time to win over those who protested. And once they realize the alternative is Trump, they'll come out in support of Biden and the Democratic Party will unite in mass to face down Trump's threat to democracy. The nerds from Metaculus are saying that there's a 52% chance that Trump would win a 2024 presidential election matchup with Biden. U.S. and NATO allies rule out troop deployments to Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, TASS, Newsweek, and Le Monde. The U.S. and a number of its NATO allies, including the U.K., Germany, and Italy on Tuesday, ruled out deploying troops to Ukraine, an idea suggested by French President Emmanuel Macron earlier in the day. Speaking at a security conference for Ukraine in the French capital, Macron said there was, quote, no consensus on sending Western troops to the country, but added that nothing should be excluded. The remarks drew an immediate rebuke from Russia, with Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov stating that such a policy would inevitably lead to a direct war between Russia and NATO. He also said it's not going to be about probability, but inevitability. Peskov added that NATO countries should also assess the consequences of such actions and be aware of them. They should ask themselves whether this corresponds to their interests, and most importantly to the interests of the citizens of their countries, he said. Soon after, NATO Security General Jen Stoltenberg ruled out the prospect. In his daily briefing, John Kirby, the White House's National Security Council spokesman pointed to those comments and said that U.S. President Joe Biden has been, quote, crystal clear about sending troops to Ukraine. He also said there will be no troops on the ground in a combat role there in Ukraine. Statements from Rishi Sunak, Olaf Scholz, and Georgia Maloney, leaders of the UK, Germany, and Italy respectively, all pointed to how they've supported the Ukrainian war effort, but said that will not include troop deployments in the country. Thanks, Eric. We're going to start the spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Newsweek. While it was a sovereign decision that each NATO ally would have to make for themselves, neither the U.S. nor NATO as a whole will deploy troops in Ukraine. 
This was merely a proposal for thought ahead of a security conference, and upon discussion, it was disregarded. Follow that with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. The notion of sending Western troops to Ukraine will inevitably lead to a war between Russia and NATO, if not World War III. The fact that this was even discussed as an option shows how badly the Ukraine strategy has failed and how delusional Western leaders have become. The nerds at Metaculus think that there's a 5% chance that Emmanuel Macron will cease being the president of France before 2027. EU Plus asylum applications are at the highest level since the 2016 crisis. The facts are agreed upon by the European Union Agency for Asylum, ABC News, and Migration and Home Affairs. Data from the European Union Agency for Asylum, or EUAA, shows that EU Plus countries received more than 1.14 million applications for asylum in 2023, approximately 18% more than the year prior and the most seen since 2016. Of the 27 EU member states plus Norway and Switzerland, which constitutes EU+, Germany received the most asylum applications, 334,000, followed by France at 167,000, Spain at 162,000, and Italy at 136,000. Syria accounted for 181,000 of all asylum applications, followed by Afghanistan, 114,000, Turkey at 101,000, Venezuela at 68,000, and Colombia at 63,000. This was in addition to the effort to give temporary visas to 4.4 million Ukrainians. The EU Plus total rate of accepted refugee claims hit a seven-year high of 43%, with its 883,000 pending cases also rising 39% from 2022. While the EU Plus as a whole received one application per 400 inhabitants, some smaller countries endured a disproportionate burden. Cyprus received one in 72, while Belgium and Estonia faced similar per capita issues. The increase stems from the new Pact on Migration and Asylum, which created uniform EU rules about identification on arrival, a common migrant database, and a solidarity mechanism to balance disproportionality among nations in which asylum seekers make their claims. Eric, we're going to start the spins with a left narrative provided by The Guardian. As the presence of anti-migrant radicals continues to grow within the EU, The bloc, founded on the principles of unity and equality, is beginning to lose its historical inclusiveness. It's crucial to restore the EU's moral compass and tolerance of asylum seekers before it's too late. As Europe was once the center of progress and inclusivity, the world will be a worse place if this is forgotten. The European conservative has the right narrative. Mass migration is a dangerous and mounting security threat facing all of Europe as countries are juggling a never-ending tide of asylum seekers. The world is facing crises on multiple fronts, including security threats from Iran, Russia, and China, and climate issues. And that is all the more reason to prioritize the security of European borders and the citizens currently inhabiting them. News out of South Korea, where the birth rate has fallen to a record new low. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Korea Joongang Daily, Korea Times, Al Jazeera, Guardian, and Nikkei Asia. Data from statistics showed on Wednesday that South Korea's fertility rate, the lowest in the world, dropped further last year, from 0.78 to a record low of 0.72 per woman during her reproductive life. This comes as the quarterly rate consistently declined through 2023. 
from .82 in the first quarter to a fresh low of .65 in the fourth quarter, with less than 230,000 births registered in the country, down 7.7% from 2022, a fast-aging country whose median age is expected to jump from 44.9 in 2022 to 63.4 in 2072. South Korea has seen its yearly fertility rate falling since 2015 when the figure was 1.24. More than $270 billion, or 360 trillion won, has been expensed in government initiatives to try and address this situation since 2006, including child care subsidies and cash payments upon birth, but to no avail. Based on the current low fertility rates, the South Korean population, which has dwindled for the fourth straight year, is projected to nearly halve to 26.8 million by 2100. A fertility rate of 2.1 children per woman is considered necessary for a country to keep a stable population. This week, Singapore and Japan also reported record lows in their birth rates in 2023. Thanks, Adam, for the facts. The conservative narrative coming from the Chosun Daily. Spending hundreds of trillions to try to boost birth rates will remain an ineffective policy as long as the government fails to address the well-known root causes of South Korea's depopulation emergency. Young Koreans have refrained from having kids and even marrying due to the lack of quality jobs and affordable homes, as well as education costs. Once these issues have been tackled, births will naturally boom. There's a progressive narrative it's provided by the New York Times. It's certain that high living costs and a tough job market do affect South Korea's fertility rate, but the main driver of the current depopulation trend has been women fed up with suffocating traditional gender norms and sexism in the country. While some argue that feminism is a problem here, actually, gender equality is the key to solving the demographic crisis. The so-called birth strike will end when life is fairer and safer for women. According to the Metaculous Prediction community with their nerd narrative, they say there's a 50% chance that South Korea's fertility rate will be at least 0.74 in 2032. Marianne Williamson resumes her presidential campaign. The facts are agreed upon by New York Post, The Guardian, Fox News, The Independent, and NBC. Self-help author Marianne Williamson, who after the Nevada primary three weeks ago suspended her campaign for the 2024 Democratic presidential nomination, Wednesday said she re-entered the race. Before her announcement, Williamson on Tuesday finished third in the Michigan Democratic primary, far behind President Joe Biden, as well as the, quote, uncommitted category but performed slightly better than Minnesota U.S. Representative Dean Phillips. In her announcement posted to X, Williamson said she's re-entering the race because, quote, we have a fascist standing at the door, referring to GOP frontrunner former President Donald Trump. She then suggested that Biden won't be able to beat Trump. Williamson further alleged that the only topic Biden is campaigning on is the economy, which she argued is only going well for, quote, 20% of the country who are on an island surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. So far, Williamson has won 4% of the vote in New Hampshire, 2% in South Carolina, and 3% in Michigan, compared to 2.7% for Phillips. Biden received 81% in Michigan, followed by 13% for, quote, uncommitted. Williamson's platform includes Medicare for all, free college tuition, subsidized childcare, reparations, and ending the war on drugs, among other things. The next primary she'll participate in will be on Super Tuesday, March 5th. 
Thank you, Eric. Guardian is going to begin the spins with a progressive narrative. Although Williamson has been losing the horse race to Biden, it's become apparent that a Biden-Trump contest won't bring important progressive issues to the forefront. Williamson can get people talking about ways to make the economy work for everyone and in the reign of corporations over the country, in addition to instilling more progressive values in the country. MSNBC follows that narrative with a democratic spin. Williamson talks a good game when it comes to progressive policies, but there are too many things about her that force people to not take her seriously, including her background as a problematic New Age spiritual guru. She has no experience in electoral politics or governing. If there's room for a progressive challenge to Biden, it shouldn't come from Williamson. The spin's going to continue with a Republican narrative provided by Fox News. Williamson sees what much of the country can see. Biden is on his way to losing to Trump. Democrats decided to put nearly all their support behind the president without considering younger, more dynamic choices. Now they're paying the price and will probably lose the White House. There's a nerd narrative for this story coming from Metaculus. It says there's a 90% chance that Trump and Biden will be the top two candidates in terms of electoral votes received in the 2024 presidential election. Now, do you think that she's running to win, that she thinks she can win, or is she just running to make sure that these problems get talked about in debates? What is your opinion? I think she's running to stand still. <laughs> News out of Australia, where an LGBTQ parade has allowed police to march out of uniform. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, BBC News, The Sydney Morning Herald, and Guardian. After the alleged murder of a gay couple in New South Wales, Australia by a police officer and ex-boyfriend of one of the victims, organizers of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade agreed to allow police to march conditional on the officers not wearing uniforms. Days after the couple's disappearance, Police Constable Beaumont Laramie Condon turned himself in at a Sydney police station on Friday and appeared in court later that day in connection with the crimes. The Mardi Gras organizers originally asked the NSW police not to attend the parade, claiming its decision was quote-unquote not taken lightly and made to provide a safe environment, quote, to protest, celebrate, and honor and grieve those we've lost. After Police Commissioner Karen Webb had dialogue with the organizers, the Mardi Gras board agreed to backtrack so long as police marched in plain clothes. Webb, however, was criticized for calling the killings a crime of passion rather than out of homophobia. Officials, including Sydney lawmaker Alex Greenwich, who is gay, had urged the organizers to reinvite the police, arguing that, quote, we need to work together. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who also lauded the decision, added he understood the concerns of the Sydney's LGBTQ community. Australia's federal police said it would not attend per the parade's original request. Police have been marching in Mardi Gras for decades, with NSW Police Minister Yasmin Catley saying it, quote, really has gone a long way to help their relationship with the LGBTQ community. Thanks, Adam, for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Daily Mail. Mardi Gras' decision to reinvite the police was the right one. Banning officers, many whom are members of the LGBTQ community, would not only hurt the relationship between police and the community, but add more unnecessary division to the world. Police need to remain close to the people they're hired to protect. So this moment should be used to strengthen that bond at a time of sadness and grief. 
Guardian's going to continue the spin with a narrative B. While the Mardi Gras board has now reversed its decision, the police should understand why it made the original decision in the first place. Australian police have failed to protect LGBTQ people for decades, even throughout the years it was participating in the parade. With police ignoring gay hate crimes for so long, the community was bound to take a stand at some point. The nerd narrative from Metaculus says there's a 24% chance that an openly LGBTQ person will be elected president of the United States by 2041. Two men have been convicted in the 2002 murder of a Run DMC rapper. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Associated Press, CNN, and PBS NewsHour. Almost 22 years after he was killed at his recording studio in Queens, New York, on Tuesday, two men were convicted for the murder of hip-hop icon Jam Master Jay, born Jason Mazel. An anonymous federal jury in Brooklyn found Mazel's godson Carl Jordan Jr., 40, and the musician's childhood friend Ronald Washington, 59, guilty of his 2002 murder. The verdict reportedly sparked a commotion in the courtroom once it was read. Mizell was the pioneering DJ of the hip-hop group Run DMC, which he formed alongside friends Joseph Simmons, a.k.a. Run, and Daryl McDaniels, a.k.a. DMC, in the early 1980s. Despite the group's lyrics disavowing drug use and their involvement in anti-drug public service announcements, the prosecutors alleged that Mizell had turned to cocaine trafficking to cover debts and his habitual generosity to friends once the trio's star power began to wane. According to witness testimonies, he had planned to acquire 10 kilograms of cocaine and distribute it through Jordan, Washington, and a drug dealer. However, a dispute cut Washington out of the deal, which prosecutors argue led to Mazel's killing on October 30, 2002. Meanwhile, another suspect, Jay Bryant, is awaiting trial on charges of allegedly allowing Jordan and Washington through the back door of the studio, where the Run DMC star was fatally shot. His case is expected to begin within the next two years. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start to spin with the narrative A provided by CBS News. While long-awaited justice for the slaying of Jam Master Jay is welcome, it comes at a cost to his legacy and to his family after the trial revealed the icon's engagement in drug trafficking, despite the public image he tried to maintain. Associated Press comes back with narrative B. Just because Jam Master Jay was involved in drug trafficking, that doesn't take away from his laudable achievements as a musician. Many artists, particularly from the hip-hop community, are products of their environment, and we wouldn't get their great art without the hardships from which they came. And in our final story today, Apple is scrapping their self-driving electric vehicle project. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Business Matters, Times Live, and NPR Online News. Apple has reportedly decided to discontinue its electric vehicle or EV project, reassigning numerous employees to its artificial intelligence division. The firm had never publicly acknowledged the project. Apple's project, Titan, had reportedly been around a decade with roughly 2,000 employees. It invested billions of dollars to create a fully autonomous vehicle free of even a steering wheel and pedals. Apple's nixing of Titan was so-called smart, according to Ray Wang founder and chief executive officer of Silicon Valley-based Constellation Research. There's little demand for EVs, and AI is where all the action is, he said. There's no word yet from Apple which has been cautious about AI, even as Alphabet and Microsoft have invested heavily in the technology. 
In addition, higher interest rates to curb inflation have dampened EV demand. Companies like Tesla are cutting expenses while focusing on hybrids instead of fully electric cars. An Apple car could have potentially transformed the auto industry, possibly competing with Tesla. Elon Musk, Tesla CEO, appeared to welcome Titan's withdrawal using salute and cigarette emojis on X. Adam, thanks for the facts. Narrative A is the first spin coming from Business Insider. After spending billions of dollars in 10 years developing an EV, Apple has smartly canceled the project. As consumer interest in electric cars has declined and competition has increased, even as Chinese automakers have made substantial market gains, moving resources to generative AI will enhance the company and boost investor confidence rather than deplete its resources like the EV project did. Apple World Today is providing us with a narrative B. For many, it would have been a dream come true to own an Apple electric car. Up to 34% of consumers, according to a survey conducted a few years ago, would have been extremely or very inclined to purchase a new Apple EV. Consumers were optimistic that an Apple electric car's design would outperform rivals. Unfortunately, the news from the company's Silicon Valley headquarters signals this will sadly remain a dream. The final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculus says there is a 50% chance the U.S. passenger car fleet will constitute 5% electric cars by May of 2028. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Leap Day, February 29th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.